post-episode discussion between ourselves we usually do this but we decide to record this yeah often after we record an episode we uh, have a really nice discussion and we thought that might be interesting to have like as an extra not an official episode but just a postscript episode uh, related to the last recording we did yeah so here it is yeah welcome to the postscript (laughs) yeah thanks (laughs) so yeah it is an interesting concept uh, with soft power, especially mm. I was thinking about in conjunction with Russia, the yeah. way Russia has been behaving on a global scale. Mm. Like they've really, they haven't toned down their sort of military forces or anything like they're, they're still involved in the war in Ukraine. Mm. And they're always, you know, on the cusp, <laughs> so to speak, seemingly of uh, going to war if you cross them or if they even just fancy a bit of land that you happen to have. But especially considering their involvement with different elections throughout the world. Mm. I'm thinking specifically of the whole election in the US in 2016 Mm. and the whole Brexit thing in the UK, where they've actively sort of been... I mean, they've always been involved with sort of intelligence and counterintelligence. Like, all nations do this. Mm. It's nothing new per se. But the way it works now in this globalized internet society is that you have this way of manipulating people on a whole different level, mm-hmm. which I think is very like closely related to the whole idea of soft power. It's not soft power per se, it's intelligence. But a lot of the mechanisms are the same. You, you know about the, the whole Cambridge Analytica thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, like how you use basically media uh, companies to manipulate the masses to vote a certain way. Mm. Uh, And you can do it really seamlessly because of the lack of privacy online, which Mm. has become a huge problem, I think. And Mm. it's something that has to be dealt with Mm. in the next decade. (laughs) Or else I don't know what the future will look like. But because of the lack of control of your personal information, a lot of these sort of data mining companies have the ability to access a lot of information on voters. Mm. And you can basically sway people by advertising, like directed advertising and stuff, to vote a specific way. And Mm. you can employ sort of um, trolls on Twitter and different platforms. Yeah, there's army of uh, Russian trolls apparently. Uh, And, you know, astroturfing Mm. and all these sorts of techniques. It's just incredibly, incredibly dark like yeah. and most people don't notice it and don't want to like most people don't want to think of themselves as being manipulated and victims of these things but in fact it's the thing with these different techniques mm. is that they use a wide variety of techniques yeah. and they seek out individuals that are susceptible to it yeah and they exploit info uh, bubbles parts of society that are like yeah, specific tri- tribalistic in nature. Yeah, specific, uh, specific sort of uh, mini societies online, and they they do like false flag uh, operations. A lot of those like pretending to be of uh, like a different political ideology, yeah. and then you know act like a total fucking moron. Mm-hmm. Plant false evidence, like like so many different kinds of ways of influence. And it's not just Russia doing this, by the way. No, no, I'm just not. using it as an example. Yeah. But in these days, there are so many ways of influencing you because 
like I mentioned earlier, we're constantly consuming information mm. and media in all these different kinds of ways and all the time. Like you're always on your smartphone these days, right? And you're always watching something online or like watching and you're binging shit on Netflix and like everything is being monitored yeah. these days. Yeah. And statistics and like metrics on you as a person, Google, like Facebook, mm. these companies don't have morality like they're extra moral entities mm. like a bit like nation states like the whole realpolitik phenomenon you don't really have morals as a nation and you don't have morals as a company because your goal as a company is to make money and your goal as a nation is to survive as a nation not on an individualistic level so these sort of extra moral entities use all these kinds of not necessarily soft but subtle ways to dictate the way you think and act and it's uh, i just think it's so scary yeah well it's interesting how the world has turned more scary the last 10 years i think more polarizing yeah the 90s and early aughts uh, feels like such a naive time almost. yeah they kind of shielded a bit at least in this part of the world not in all parts of the world like the examples you mentioned but you have these um Chinese uh, hardware companies that make smartphones or whatever yeah. and the, the feeling that they're all connected to the Chinese government and they might be using that data against you in the future. There's a lot of like these implicated threats which are unclear, undefined. And of course um, in China you have the whole social credit system and the whole yeah. like they're gathering a lot of information on their citizens but they're also gathering a lot of information probably a lot more than you'd think on foreign people yeah. like uh on a global scale the big powers have realized and they're using this power the new types of power in the world yeah and i was talking about companies and nation states but of course yeah. in china those things are always intertwined yeah. because the government has a say in companies there yeah. so uh, it's really unhealthy mix of government control over private companies that is like the end point there seems super Orwellian. Mm. A lot of the, the noise I've heard about those um, apps and the information stuff, they sound almost like this Black Mirror episode, Nosedive, yeah. where everything you do is rated and whether or not you can get good rates on a, buying a house or if you're allowed into a party, they're all based on the rates you get socially or politically. And uh, they, they do have started implementing those sorts of systems. Mm. Uh, and that sounds it's absolutely fucking troubling. <laughs> it's yeah. fucking troubling. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the whole... Like all the atrocities that are being perpetrated across the world, like the whole uh, Uyghur uh, concentration camps in China. Yeah. And of course you have like the an example that's been going on for a lot longer, mm. the concentration camps in North Korea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And w- what I'm thinking about in connection to that is the dissemination of information. Because in, in China now, information is so filtered, mm-hmm. you know? And I think information is being filtered on a larger level throughout yeah. The global world. Yeah, of course. Um, and for us as well, when I go on Facebook or whatever, I don't get a lot of right-wing propaganda. But I mean, there's a lot of it. And yeah. it's obviously being directed to someone else. I mean, I mostly get left-wing propaganda. <laughs> that's because that's the sort of people that I know about, what they post and stuff. We're also caught in our info bubbles. That means in some ways you don't have like a collective idea of information. It's cut up into pieces. And no, and, you, and you, the control of it is in the hands of these private companies and nation states, none of which really care about you. Well, they care about making money. Exactly. And that's their end goal. And I think especially Facebook, it's such a nefarious organization. Like I'm 
on Facebook, but I don't use it. I, I don't want, mm. you know, Mr. Suck, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg to get my information and, and, and use it. Like, mm. not that I think there's much of value there, but I think in general, these days, people take that shit way too lightly. Like, well, of course, on a personal level, like for one person, it might not matter that mm. much. But on a global level, I think it matters incredibly much. Yeah, and, and that's just thinking about maybe the political side of things, mm. but also in conjunction with like insurance, for instance, yeah. like you being denied insurance because of some information they've mined on you mm-hmm. online. Well, that's it's, a potential future, I think. Yeah, like yeah. shit like that. And I think yeah. that's the direction we're moving towards. Well, I mean, th- there's also a lot of growing skepticism. There is too, and, uh, there is too. There's been talk of breaking up a bunch of these American companies like Facebook. You break up Facebook from Instagram and WhatsApp and this sort of stuff. And of course, the people who own Facebook are terrified of this. And they, yeah. I mean, I can understand why, but truth is they just have too much influence. It used to be and much more own... common with, you know, trust busting and, and that kind of thing in the United States before. Yeah, uh, yeah they did it a lot before. A, yeah. a problem these days is that a lot of companies are global and it's mm. difficult to pin down exactly where, like, as a legal entity, mm. they exist all over the place. It's uh, more complicated, but it can be done. It can be done, but also, like, in, in the cases where it has been done and companies has been forced to sort of split a lot of times they just form a shell company and yeah. it's still the same. Like, yeah. it's difficult to enforce to. Mm. Yeah, it's just super problematic. Yeah, that's one of the like weird and dangerous things about, you know, modern capitalism. It's kind of like just this all-consuming beast. Whatever you throw at it, it integrates into itself and continues to grow. Whether or not your concept is uh, anarchism, like a welfare state or whatever, mm. it'll just eat it. Yeah. And sell it as something else. Assimilate and, it. And it'll just grow still. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the problem with modern capitalism, of course, it's done a lot of good things, like in terms of growth of personal luxuries and stuff like that, of, of just an easier life yeah. on a very basic level. But I think the problem in large part is that there is no moral imperative mm. in capitalism. And it sort of exists beyond that. And I think when ideologies do not have that sort of moral imperative or like some empathetic outlook or some notion of egalitarianism, that it's the growth of that sort of ideology will always be, in the end, negative. Destructive. Destructive, yeah. Destructive for the individual. As an ideology in itself, it wants to survive and thrive and does. But but it comes at the cost of... The individual citizen. I think it's potentially quite destructive for itself as well. I mean, the only imperative is to earn money. So in the end, everything will just serve that. Um, yeah. And it's not to say that, you know, everybody should be completely anarchistic and just live out in the woods or whatever. Like there are definite positives to capitalism, like I said, but without it being tempered with some sort of moral imperative or some sort of regulatory entity that can not be assimilated and eaten by it. Basically, you need a state. Yeah. You need uh, a state that's willing to enforce and set those rules. Or a union of states, potentially, that have a set of rules that are very strict, that uh, regulate what's possible, what's allowed. I mean, yeah, you know, but that can also be problematic in terms of censorship and all that kinds of stuff. So it's a very tricky business to go in and say what's 
allowed and what's not allowed, mm. what's free speech and what hate speech, for instance. I think ultimately, if the ideal would be nation states gaining moral values or companies gaining actual moral values because they don't actually have this at this point. Of course, those are theoretical constructs. Yeah. You can't give them moral values, mm. but you can enforce these ideologies or use these ideologies in a way that's defensible to the human experience. I've thought a lot about this. Having answers for it is very difficult, but I, I guess I've kind of imagined concept of like a separate type of currency, which isn't easily traded and it isn't controlled through companies, but through a state that deals more with, let's say, land and political power. So that there's a buffer, there's a shield between what a company or economic force can influence. There's some things that cannot be bought and changed through, like, say, a marketplace mm. that is based in a set of values. One idea, you'd have, like, the American Constitution as an example of something like that that's supposed to be a set of moral values. And also a set of checks and balances yeah. that, in theory, would sort of balance each other out. And I think that is the way to do it, checks and balances, but also making sure that those things cannot be mm. subverted. Yeah. You know? And yeah, so, so my idea is kind of a separate currency, like a, a state currency that isn't traded in that sense, but awarded, depended on meeting the goals of society as a whole. Like getting a star on your essay from yeah. your teacher. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> I guess it's kind of like this incentives that something like the Nobel Peace Prize should do. Yeah. The kind of nice things. So, so it's more of a carrot than the stick. Well, it's not a fully fleshed out idea. I'm just thinking that, <laughs> you know, a lot of people talk you, about... You're our, not going to solve the world's problems? Well, potentially, just not right now. But, um, you know, a lot of people talk about our time as the late stage capitalism. Yeah. Because it's really, you can feel the seams starting to tear out. Yeah, and a lot of people are getting very disenchanted uh, with the whole thing. Yeah, there is change coming. Potentially just global warming and all that horrible shit. Yeah, change, change, change is going to come, like <laughs> Sam Cooke's saying. Out from the ashes, perhaps a different type of system, re-evaluating the values in society. I think getting the focus back on the worth mm. and dignity of human life, I think, would be a great goal. Yeah. And I think very essential part of that as a way of starting would, mm. would definitely be to give people back control of their information. Possibly. The, the scary thing I find is if you think back at history, previous catalysts for changing of values in a positive light, not always, but sometimes they've been like just these absolutely horrible uh, events like World War II. The idea that racism was a bad thing or the concept of racism as a negative thing yeah. wasn't really properly established. Definitely not in Europe. You just took it for granted that yeah, some people, they were better than others. And the skin, yeah, those people are savages. And normalization of that as a bad thing and that you can't go around uh, hating people because of their heritage. Is, yeah. Is, was, I mean, that was a consequence of the Second World War. Yeah, for sure. And we take it for granted, I think, in large part in our part of the world. But it's definitely not the absolute truth for large parts of the world. Mm. And I don't know, sometimes change has to come through violent means too. Well, I'm not sure if they have to, but they... Yeah, okay, they, let me rephrase that. Yeah. Sometimes it happens through violent means. Yeah. Like, you, sometimes you can't... Sometimes, you know, a demonstration just isn't enough. Well, the concept of violence is very interesting to me. 
because in some way, soft power and these internet trolls and the influence through ads and all that sort of stuff, it's a subtle form of violence that has an intended effect. It's destructive for a lot of people and maybe useful to some. I guess that's also part of my interest in this podcast is to discuss these themes in terms of values. Like I said earlier in the podcast about Come and See, the um, value of a light-hearted rom-com about finding perfect love yeah. is rose-tinted and charming. But to me, there's something destructive about that. I often feel quite frustrated and annoyed by those over-sentimentalized films or bits of culture. The way you market Christmas as well as just this consumer fest. is. Uh, I think it has a bit to do with complacency. It's not that those movies are nefarious on their own, but they do sort of tend to make you complacent. And I think that's a huge part of what's going on in the world right now is that people are not necessarily happy with the way things are, but they are incredibly complacent and not willing to do much about it. Mm. Yeah, but also the value of culture, what types of culture are normalized and accepted. I understand very well why a lot of people find unpleasant bits of culture difficult to deal with they don't want to have more difficulties in their lives <laughs> yeah it's difficult enough as it is uh, but i think that's one of the important roles of culture it shouldn't just be a sedative element it should also be something to sharpen minds and awaken thoughts and feelings that are problematic yeah and also just let you think about things from a different angle or recontextualize something or, or yeah. you, like you said sharpen your mind a bit broaden your mind mm. and open you to new experiences and new modes of thought. And I think, interestingly, really uncomfortable and unpleasant cinema often has the way of being transformative in that way because there are often much more impactful experiences than a more sedate uh, movie generally would tend to be. Not that a pleasant movie can't be transformative, but I think a lot of good, unpleasant cinema does have that transformative quality to it that it sort of holds a mirror up to you or shows you a part of humanity that you might not want to see or deal with. It enriches your understanding of the world, I think. But yeah, I agree. It's it's a large part of why I like discussing unpleasant movies. Mm. Generally, it has more food for discussion. Yeah, food for thought. <laughs> and discussion is such an important part of mental development, I think. Yeah. You know, Socrates was really onto something when he wanted to use discussion as his main mode of getting at truth, he never wrote anything down, you know, he just went around talking to people. He was lucky right? that Pluto went around writing everything down. Yeah. Or constructed to what degree we don't know the character of Socrates. And we do know something, and mm. other things are more dubious, and mm. some things we know are not true. But mm. nonetheless, we do know that he, he went around talking to people. And I think that's talking to people is such a good way of broadening your mental horizon mm. in a way that maybe a lot of people don't do enough these days. I feel like I definitely don't do it enough, uh, and it's quite rewarding. Yeah, it's easy to get stuck in your own bubble. Yeah, there's being so... being confronted with like a completely different perspective is important, I think. Certainly. There's so many echo chambers online these mm. days and, um, and the political debates. and mm. It's hard to take a step out your bubble. Yeah, and you feel like these tribal ideas about uh, one perspective is the enemy of the other and uh, mm. these very binary points of view that um, 
not very useful, I think. No. That's actually one of the thoughts I had about soft power, American soft power, in terms of Scandinavia and Europe. The, it's not, of course, only the American soft power, but also religious of the Christian church. The binary point of view yeah. simplify to an extreme degree what is possible and what's knowable. Certainly. In terms of, yes, life and death. Simplified and gender. symbolic. And I do believe that by getting out of your comfort zone and looking at a world that is unpleasant and more difficult to mm. describe and perhaps more nuanced and multifaceted, mm. you do grow as a person. And I think the opposite of that is also how you become a bigot or a... Yeah, you shrink as a Yeah, <laughs> your brain shrinks. Like you become close-minded if you see the world in super simplistic terms, right? But the idea of a close-minded bigot is also kind of simplistic. I guess I think of a lot of these tendencies as being protective. Someone caught up in sensations of fear and insecurity and needing something clear to relate to. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, that that's part of why the last part of the movie with the stock footage... I found the least interesting because of the sort of simplistic and non-nuanced way it portrayed World War II. Like, I know there's a different way of viewing it, but that's sort of what I'm thinking of. It's better to take a more difficult approach and a longer, like it may take a longer while to get at something more truthful, but I think it's valuable to look at the nuances in in bigotry and hatred and these sort of ideologies of hate. I read someone describing film as a medium that's uncomfortable with ambiguity because film is such an emotional medium. I don't agree entirely because I think ambiguity is really effective in film, but it does unsettle the viewer in a way that maybe it doesn't as strongly in, let's say, literature. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. And it's, but that's it's, really effective, though, and, and important. A narrative that has ambiguous elements, like it can be a David Lynch movie, and sort of yeah. things that are unclear and you don't really know so much about the plot, perhaps, but those can be emotionally or artistically very interesting. But they can also be quite challenging and useful, I think, in terms of communicating concepts and themes. Yeah, I think often the uncomfortable creations can be a lot more intense mm. when you do it in the mode of cinema. Like uh, if you take a super uncomfortable book, for instance, like Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, mm. there's so many horrible scenes in it and super violent and uncomfortable and ambiguous. But I don't think you have the same sort of visceral response you'd have as if you were forced to see those scenes play mm. out with sound mm. in front of your eyes. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some yeah. people find it more intense when you read it. But I, I think cinema yeah. does have have a way of really intensifying certain mm. emotions. Music also, but in a, a different way. Sometimes music can sneak by you really like nefarious and disgusting and unpleasant like elements, abusive relationships as if they're normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, like a lot of pop music in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, hey there, young girl, come to me. <laughs> yeah. She was only 16, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. like that's <laughs> that sounds like a fun time. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But um, it's interesting also with video games. In some ways, film is more effective. In some ways, it isn't. Like a scary movie, a really scary movie. It can be really scary, but a really scary game 
you're just going to have to turn that shit off. Yeah. You, you just get so nervous and uh, anxious that you just can't handle it. That's my experience anyway. Yeah, but... I've never I th- had that with a film, but... No, some- I think it has to do with a lot with agency and with passivity. Mm. Like, even the most intense movie, you're ultimately passive. You're watching, right? But with a game, you're actively involved making choices, yeah. uh, which, which makes horror elements or loss of agency in, in a game yeah. that more terrifying. Yeah, it more closely uh, emulates like real life horror. Mm. But at the same time, there's not as many examples of like thoughtful use of unpleasantness in in games, I think. No, but I think uh, a lot of games, like most, most games don't really, really delve too deeply into what's special about the mode of games. Contrary to cinema, I think in large part, games have been way too beholden to cinematic uh, modes of thought sure. when they could be well, a lot of games are using specific mechanics and, and stuff that only games can do to to really explore mm. the medium of games and that's interesting and i hope we get a lot more of it because well, i mean it's similar to how cinema specifically in the early days leaned a lot on theater as right like right games have looked a lot towards cinema but in terms of unpleasantness i think there's a hindrance there to make unpleasant games I mean, if the game mechanics are unpleasant, which you can do, or if, if the game starts to feel unpleasant to deal with, acting out in that space becomes more problematic than sitting and watching a movie, yeah. in a sense. But I'm interested to see more examples of this. I mean, we have probably more recommendations for this uh, further on as we yeah, talk about for more sure. projects. But, um, but it's interesting to think about how young the medium of video games are yeah. compared to movies took a long while for movies to like move to the stage of of where I find it today like early movies were like you said basically, basically yeah. theater it is starting to mature though i mean um, one of the first examples i experienced of a game that had a strong sense of ambiguity it's a playstation game called shadow of colossus where you're basically just this hero guy shows up in this country he's going to save the life of this princess or whatever who's died and Zelda to do that style. And uh, to do that, he has to defeat a bunch of giant... Uh, Colossi. Colossi. Yeah. These stone creatures. And uh, uh, you just ride around in this landscape, you find one, and then you defeat it and go to the next. And but confronting them is not like a normal confrontation in a game because they're quite beautiful and interesting. They're very large, most of them, so you have to traverse them almost like you're climbing a castle wall. They're animated so beautifully... And when you do defeat them, it's kind of off. I mean, it might start off as a glorious thing, but the more and more of them that you just kill off, it just becomes more and more ambiguous. And why are you murdering all these magnificent creatures for the sake of one life that's personally important to you? It becomes very ambiguous, the entire thing. And it's a really good game, I think. Very interesting and um, striking it's quite early, too. It's like early 2000s or something. It's a PlayStation 2 game, yeah. I think. I think it's cool the way it problematizes game mechanics, basically. Beating the bosses, yeah. right? So that's really, really cool. And I think a lot more games are exploring those things. Yeah. With the rise of the indie scene, a lot of Yeah, stuff like has, Braid and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Where you really look at game mechanics and what that means and how you can explore that mm. and explore story with mechanics. Yeah, and kind of a meta level. yeah. I guess it's similar to the uh, postmodernist uh, movements of other forms of arts. Uh, yeah. Did you, did you play Undertale? You know, I, I have it uh, lying about, but I haven't picked... I, I think I, I guess I started a little bit, but I, I didn't 
follow you should really really try it out for real because that's yeah. probably one of the best examples i know of games using you know game mechanics and no modern notions of gaming and like just theory of gaming mm. combined with just funny writing and it's excellent piece of gaming yeah like, yeah i've got really, that yeah. Yeah. another small game that's really cool yeah. in that regard is one shot oh, which this? also has a lot of like meta small details that you have to do i won't spoil it but it's really cool the way it plays with game mechanics as you mentioned at the come and see episode uh, this is our 10th episode so we've started to get into making a podcast learning a bit as we go so I've been thinking about that, maybe learning to structure ourselves a bit better as we go along. Yeah. Trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. Trying not um, to talk over each other. Yeah. <laughs> we do that a lot. Yeah. We, we had that problem for a couple of episodes where yeah. I think we just start, we just butting heads a bit. Yeah. I think it's just growing pains of all, all those kinds of yeah. like podcasting you have to. But it is interesting because uh, there's, there's a couple of unspoken things. Um, for example, the music is made by you. Yeah. And uh, you. Yeah. And your wonderful band, Umulium, which right. I guess translate into impossibilitum or something like that. Impossibilium. Impossibilium. Like it's an element or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah as an as a, um, element of uh, nature. Yeah. Because you are also a musician. Yeah. I dabble in the musical arts. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the artwork. Uh, for the episodes uh, is yeah, made you do. by me. Uh, I love those beautiful little drawings. The digital drawings where I take a still from a film and I just I draw over them. It's not really a drawing exercise. It's more like a color and composition exercise. Yeah, and a bit like abstraction almost. Yeah. With, uh, I, I'm, I'm a bit uh, inspired by Fauvism from um, modernist school of art. Yeah. Which I find interesting. I, I want to have something that looks decorative, but also is charged with some of the unpleasantness. Uh, Fauvism, of course, means beastly, because apparently these artists making these crazy color compositions were beastly in their non-naturalistic uh, temperament. Yeah, there was this uh, this German thing, like during the rise of the Nazi Party, where we had degenerate art. Yeah, yeah, and uh, a lot of the modernists were viewed as degenerate. And I think it's interesting in connection with come and see because mm. it was also rejected because it was viewed as degenerate because <laughs> yeah. it had too realistic and naturalistic scenes. Yeah. I think once art is viewed as degenerate, you generally have to seek it out and enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, when whenever a, a state or, or let's say a company tries to control from art, that's a big uh, red alarm yeah, uh, going off. That means it's your duty to check it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it all it does have like the Barbara Streisand effect, if you know what that is. Please tell. Which is, uh, I think there was a, this photo of Barbara Streisand's uh, mansion in L.A. Mm. Uh, or somewhere, and she didn't want it to be uh, shared online, so she made this big stink about it. And the effect was that everyone saw it. Everybody <laughs> started to view the picture, and everybody started talking about it. Like the more you say, don't view this image or, or don't yeah. read this book, the more press it gets. Mm, so it's sort of a self-defeating phenomenon. It becomes more enticing. Yeah. It's more cool to read an illegal book, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's nice. So that's our first postscript commentary. Yeah. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. And as usual, you can get in touch with us through unpleasantmovies at 
protonmail.com. And, um, you know, check out our list on Mubi for our pleasant movies and all that stuff. Yeah, we'll be trying our best to improve our episodes and deliver good discussion to the best of our ability. And, um, yeah. So thanks for now. Yeah, thanks for now. And I uh, hope you're all living your best life. Mm-hmm.